Okay, well, for the rest of us, uh, if you have your Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 9. If you're using the Bible from one of the seats, you'll find Luke chapter 9 on page 733. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Every once in a while, it turns out that we should have listened to that unlikely person who was telling us something that we found really hard to believe. For example, maybe you've seen the classics 80 movies or 80s movie War Games. Uh, David, a young computer whiz from Seattle who's looking for a video game to play online, mistakenly logs into NORAD's nuclear computer command system. Uh, and... Uh, prompts the computer uh, to begin playing a game of nuclear war with Russia. And it's just a game, but the, the commanders at NORAD don't know that. And they think Russia's really attacking them. So they're getting ready to counterattack, which will mean mistakenly beginning World War III and annihilating the world. And the big question, the tension in the movie is, can David warn them about what's really going on before it's too late? And will they believe him? Why would they believe him? He's just some teenage kid from Seattle. Every once in a while, it turns out that we should listen to that unlikely person who's telling us something that we find really hard to believe. Well, you could say that Jesus might just be that sort of unlikely person. There are a lot of reasons it might make sense not to listen to Jesus. First, Jesus lived an awfully long time ago. Uh, how could anything that he said be relevant to our advanced society today, to our needs and our concerns and our challenges? We've developed so much since those old days of ignorance and superstition in which Jesus lived. Second, there are a lot more relevant and compelling voices that we can and do listen to today. There is the New York Times bestseller list. There are the TED Talks. There are great, insightful, inspiring self-help experts who are so popular today. Uh, Dr. Phil and Oprah, um, Joel Olstein, plenty of others. They're more inspiring. They're more current. They have bigger followings in some cases. And have you heard the testimonies? They have changed plenty of lives and helped plenty of people. Then there are the money experts who can help you uh, learn how to be financially successful and how to make your money grow. Uh, rich dad, poor dad, and others as well. And there are religious gurus, guides, writers, who uh, can offer the most wonderful mix of new and old spirituality. Um, and they can help to tailor make a religion that's perfectly suited for you. And so with all of this available to us today, why would we listen to Jesus? Third, even in Jesus' own day, he was just a poor peasant. He, he didn't grow up in a place like Westchester or Greenwich or Chelsea. He, he lived in a place more like Harlem or Camden. He didn't go to college. He didn't read the New York Times. As far as we know, Jesus probably never traveled more than 100 miles from where he was born. He was a local yokel. How often can we take someone like that seriously? Fourth, by most standards, Jesus was a failure, not a success. He never wrote a book. He never founded a synagogue or even had a job at one. He never made much money. He never even started a family. Jesus talked a lot about saving people and 
rescuing them from their oppression and, and their enemies. But he got killed by his people's oppressors, just like a lot of other would-be saviors and messiahs of his day. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand him and they deserted him by the end of his life. And those who were in the best position to, to judge Jesus' validity, those who, who best knew the Jewish scriptures and, and who were most respected as religious voices in their day, they didn't leave us in question about their verdict of Jesus. They rejected him. They diagnosed him as deluded and even dangerous. What could someone like that really have to say to people like us today? Fifth, Jesus' teachings are so hard, so off-putting. As Doug showed us last week when we looked at verses 18 to 27, Jesus insists that if we're going to follow him, we have to take up our crosses every day to embrace suffering self-sacrifice, even literal death. We have to deny ourselves, our pleasures, our dreams, our aspirations for the sake of Jesus. We have to lose our lives in order to save them. Jesus has already told us what this means in practice back in chapter 6 in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It means that if we're attacked or insulted, we have to give up our right to respond in the same way. If, if someone takes from us, we have to give up our right to demand it back. If, if we borrow uh, or someone borrows from us and, and doesn't repay, we have to give up our right to demand repayment. If someone hurts us, we have to give up our right to hold a grudge and stay angry at them. Jesus will go on to say in Luke 12 that because the poor are blessed and the rich are spiritually in danger, we are to sell our possessions and give to the poor. But why listen to what Jesus has to say in all of these inconvenient teachings? Sixth, as we continue to move um, from our modern viewpoint and put ourselves back in the shoes of the original disciples, why would these disciples listen to Jesus when they already had Moses and Elijah and the other prophets? You've heard the saying, a prophet is without honor in his own home. Well, you could also say a prophet is without honor in his own day. I mean, don't the great figures of the past somehow seem bigger and greater than anyone in the present? Don't Cy Young and Babe Ruth seem somehow greater than Matt Scherzer or even Derek Jeter? Don't Martin Luther and Hudson Taylor seem greater than any pastor or missionary who you know or have heard of today? How much more so Moses... <laughs> who spoke with God face to face on the mountain, who brought down the Ten Commandments written by God's own hand, who fed the Israelites for 40 years with manna from heaven in the desert, who did many other miracles too. Or how about Elijah, who called down fire from heaven and through his prayers determined whether it would rain or not for three years. These figures walked with God. They spoke for God. They were bigger than life in the historical memory of them. And so it's always hard to imagine if you're a disciple that, that the guy with you in flesh and blood, wearing the same kind of robe, the same kind of sandals, eating the same food that you're eating could be as great as those great figures from the past. Seventh, this is especially the case when Jesus starts talking all crazy saying that the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David, the one anointed to God's throne, is going to suffer and die. 
that's not the kind of salvation that God's people needed at all, in their opinion. That's not what Moses and the prophets had predicted, as far as anyone understood. Moses and Elijah, we can count on their theology. They wrote scripture. But what about this Jesus saying these strange, unorthodox things? Talking about being a Messiah who's going to suffer and die. This was very sketchy theology. And it made no sense. Why listen to Jesus? Why take him seriously? Well, today's passage gives us some reasons. In today's story, we learn of some dramatic events that took place up on a mountain. Jesus had climbed up there with three of his closest disciples to pray. And as Jesus prayed, he was transfigured before the disciples. Then he was joined by Moses and Elijah. And then God's glory cloud moved in and God's voice spoke. Let's look at four reasons we discover on the mountain that we should listen to Jesus. First, on the mountain, we discover that Jesus is greater than he appears. He's more glorious than his peasant status suggests. For on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, Jesus' appearance changes to reveal another aspect of who he is. His appearance, uh, the appearance of his face changes and his clothes become as white as lightning, Luke tells us. This description suggests glory and, and purity and, and greatness, something heavenly and transcendent. Can you imagine when Jesus is transfigured, it's not that Jesus has taken his disguise off and now we see who Jesus really is. No, at this point in his existence, Jesus really is a humble, weak human being. It's just that we now see that that's not all of who Jesus is. On the mountain, we see that Jesus is also someone utterly glorious. Up to this point, this heavenly glory has been hidden, but it's there and it's real. And now the disciples see it and they are awed. That's a reason to take Jesus seriously. It's a reason to listen to him. Second, on the mountain, we see that Jesus has a greater status in God's plan than it might seem. Peasant though he was, many people in Jesus' day, especially common people, thought Jesus was pretty great. Because of the miracles that he did, because of the way that he taught with authority. And so some were even equating him with Elijah and others with the prophet that was to come, which, by the way, according to Deuteronomy 18.15, was going to be someone like Moses. But very few people realized that Jesus was even greater than those two great figures. Peter had an inkling. We saw this last Sunday. Peter had concluded that Jesus was the Messiah, not just an Elijah figure, not just a Moses-like prophet. No, those roles weren't big enough. Jesus is greater than that, Peter felt. He's no other than the Messiah, the, the great anticipated king who would rescue God's people from their oppressors and set up God's glorious eternal kingdom. But no sooner had Peter suggested this than Jesus started talking all unmessiah-like about suffering and dying. So, of course, Jesus' disciples 
um, even though they were the ones who knew Jesus best, they were getting totally confused. But what now happens on top of the mountain reinforces that Peter was on the right track. This event does happen on a mountain after all. And in the Bible, mountains are where God comes down and reveals himself to his greatest representatives. Moses had met God on a mountain with shining face and a cloud of glory and earthquakes and the voice of God. Elijah had met God on a mountain, too, with earthquake and mighty wind and then especially in a still small voice. And now Jesus, too, and his disciples with him have a similar experience of meeting God on a mountain. This is the sort of way we would expect God to introduce his Messiah, someone playing such a great role in God's plan. And Moses and Elijah both show up to boot. These two great figures alongside of Jesus. Just to reinforce that Jesus isn't filling either of their shoes, but that he's a third in his own right. And as we're about to see, as the Messiah, Jesus is going to surpass and transcend both of them. And so third on the mountain, we learn that Jesus is so great that he's the fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah, law and prophets had begun and had pointed toward. Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus and they talk with him about his departure, which he's about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, there's a play on words here with this word, which is translated departure in most English Bibles. Literally, it's the word exodus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to bring a new exodus to fulfillment. Jesus um, is going to bring to fulfillment an exodus that's even greater, far greater than that led by Moses. Jesus is going to bring the new exodus that was foretold by the prophets. As Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus, you, you get the sense that they who represent God's Old Testament word are both on board, that they're supportive of, that they're in sync with, that they're in the know with this new exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. And then God himself shows up in a cloud and and speaks his divine approval and his commendation over Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah disappear and only Jesus is left. So it's not about Moses or Elijah. It's about Jesus now. It's just Jesus, the one who's who's greater than the one who fulfills the other two. And God says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus, not to Moses, not to Elijah. Sure, they played their preparatory role in pointing to Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, the other two have disappeared. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets. So God says, in effect, do you revere Moses and the Ten Commandments? You think they're pretty important? Listen to Jesus. His teaching is greater. Do you have a favorite verse from the prophets? Maybe Micah 6, 8 or or some Jeremiah 33, 3 or something from Isaiah. Listen to Jesus. He is greater. Because, in fact, Jesus is what Moses and the prophets were pointing toward all along. The law with its commands was pointing toward the kind of moral life that Jesus lived and that he's now teaching us to live and pointing toward the need for a sacrifice to cover over our sins so that we could have fellowship with God. 
The prophets' predictions of judgment and hope were pointing toward the day of the Lord when when the Messiah came to, to begin to bring judgment on the earth and to bring salvation to those who repent before him and, and to bring them into a new creation. You won't understand Moses fully until you understand how Moses points to Jesus. You won't understand the prophets fully until you understand how they point to Jesus as well. Jesus is the one that they foretold. He's the greater one that God had promised to send. And so forth on the mountain, God himself says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is a mashup. Do you know that God makes mashups? Do you know what a mashup is? Ask someone young if you don't. Um, it, it's a mashup of three Old Testament verses. First is Psalm 2.9, a prediction uh, of the day when the future son of David would, would take his seat on God's throne and declare, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Do you hear the father-son language here? When the kings of old used this kind of language, they were making a treaty. They were making a covenant together. The greater king would call himself father as he entered into covenant with the lesser king who would then become his son. And while this is political language, often marriage to a princess was part of the deal for the lesser king. And so often, literally, the lesser king was now the son, the son-in-law of the greater king. And in return for the lesser king's political allegiance and tribute, the greater king was promising to support and protect and to be allied with the lesser king. So here on the mountain, God, the greater king, is saying, yes, I have installed Jesus as my Messiah king, and I am committed to him 100%. We have a covenant. We have a treaty. The second verse is Isaiah 42.1, where God talks about um, his servant, who we later find out in Isaiah 53, is going to be a suffering servant. And this figure, this suffering servant, would one day come to rescue God's people from captivity and to work out God's good plans for the world. Isaiah 41, 2. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Then third in this mashup is Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, where Moses foretells that when God's people are tempted to run after other gods, God would raise up a prophet like Moses and they must listen to him. David, Isaiah, Moses, they all point to Jesus. And now God himself thunders from heaven and says, yes, you must listen to him. He is my son, my chosen one. Do you think we should listen to the voice? Do you think we should listen to Jesus? Tell me who else has God done this for? For Oprah? For Robert Kiyosaki. <laughs> so if we're supposed to listen so closely to Jesus, how do we do that? Let, let me suggest three ways. First way, don't let anything water down Jesus's words. Go back and reread what Jesus has just said before this happens. Right before God tells us to listen to Jesus, Jesus has told us what kind of Messiah, what kind of king he's going to be. He's going to be a suffering and a dying king. 
And if you want to follow him, if you want to be a part of that sort of kingdom, then you have to take up your cross and follow his example. You have to lose your life to save it. Listen to him, God says. Go back and listen to him. Actually, you don't have to go back because in just a few verses, 43 to 50, Jesus is going to repeat it again because he knows we didn't get it the first time. Jesus is going to tell us again how he's going to die. And he's going to go on to say, if you want to be great in his kingdom, you have to become the least, the least. You got it? Are you listening? God himself in a voice from heaven says, My son, my king is talking to you. Don't blow him off. Listen to him. Don't put Jesus on par with any voices today, not on TV, not on the magazine rack, not in the blogosphere, not in the church, not even your mama. (laughs) Listen to Jesus. Don't let anyone water down or explain away or smooth over what he's trying to say to us. And don't, Even read past it in the Bible and look for something easier in the next chapter. (laughs) Don't turn to Moses or to the law. Don't turn to Elijah or to the prophets. They'll just point you right back to Jesus. Don't let what Jesus is telling us get buried or forgotten amidst a thousand other Bible verses. No, listen to the heavenly voice again. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen. In fact, the second way we're to listen has to do with how we read Moses and Elijah, because we are supposed to read them. We're supposed to read the law and the prophets. They're God's word to us. But we're supposed to listen for Jesus when we read them. Because as the title of of a popular children's Bible puts it, every story whispers his name. It's not that we're supposed to be finding hidden references and secret hints to Jesus all over the Old Testament. But, but rather that we're, we're to see that, broadly speaking, everything that God was doing in the Old Testament was preparing and pointing toward Jesus. Whether it's God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations, or God's act of liberation under Moses to powerfully redeem a people for himself from slavery, or whether it's God's giving people laws and and commands to teach us God's heart to teach us how to live as truly human ones in his image loving God loving our neighbor with mercy with justice with faithfulness or whether it's the kingdom of David which pointed us toward the possibility of a united kingdom of of peace under God where justice is done for all or the exile which shows us that God will not bankroll wickedness and oppression even when it's being done by his own people. No, God will zealously discipline the wicked, and yet at the same time, he will rescue and draw close those who are faithful to him and comfort those who suffer with the hope that one day he will restore all things. The whole biblical story points to, calls for, demands fulfillment in Jesus. And when we read the Bible, all roads lead toward Jesus. And now that he's come, Moses and the prophets are not God's final word to us anymore. They're God's word, but they're not God's final word. 
Rather, they are words, preliminary chapters in the story, which help us to see who Jesus is and help us to understand him better so that we can listen to him and understand him more clearly. Third way we're to listen is that we're not to get distracted in religious activities. That's what Peter does in this story. He sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus and he thinks, oh man, this is perfect. It's like the religious hall of fame. (laughs) It, It doesn't get any better than this. Let's just hold on to this moment. I know, let me put up a shelter for each of them so they can stay right here. And what isn't clear in the English uh, text is that the word shelter that Peter uses here is is the Sukkot. It's the, the tabernacle that Jews build each year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. During this feast, they remembered that God had rescued them from the first exodus through Moses. And they looked forward to the new exodus when God would send his Messiah to rescue them again. And so with Moses and Elijah appearing and this talk of Jesus fulfilling a new exodus, you can understand why Peter wants to celebrate this way. This is tabernacle stuff. But God says, no, don't get distracted with extra religious activities. Don't try to package or or control or domesticate my glory or, or what is going on here, what I'm doing here. Focus on Jesus instead. Listen to him. You know, one of the things that, that we pastors get warned about in, in pastor school um, is that our stock and trade is religion and that people like to use religion to hide from God. Think about it. That, what's one of the, uh, the greatest sins against God? Idolatry, right? And uh, idolatry, worshiping other things besides the true God. And idolatry is a particularly religious sin. Now, I know that even a secular person can make an idol out of their car or their job or another person if they consider it more important than God. But it's the religious people who are most obviously prone to idolatry. Worshiping a false image or a false conception of God or or making God something other than he is. Very often we use religion to hide from, to avoid the true God. Well, here we see Peter getting distracted by religion, excited about Moses and Elijah wanting to preserve the moment and enshrine it in religious activity. And God says, no, look at my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. We need to listen to Jesus, too, because he's speaking to us. Don't blow off what he's saying. And think, well, Jesus, I don't want to hear that. So tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll join a Bible study instead. Or uh, I'll put a little extra in the offering plate next week and then I'll feel better. Or I'll pray extra long. No, God says, don't hide behind going to church. Don't um, hide behind um, doing a random act of kindness. Don't hide behind volunteering for a church committee. You've got to actually listen to Jesus first before you think about doing any of those things. First priority. Read the gospel stories about Jesus and listen to what he says. Well, in closing, for those of us who do listen to Jesus, he brings not only harsh words, hard words, not harsh words, but hard words. He also brings wonderful words. He assures us that that he has come not only to speak to us, but also to suffer for us in love. 
And not only to call disciples who will leave everything to follow him, but also to die for them. So that we can be liberated, so that we can be set free from sin, from addiction, from all that binds us and holds us back. To live purposeful and beautiful and meaningful lives. Also so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God with no more guilt, no more condemnation. That's the best reason to listen. Jesus is the glorious Messiah who brings a new exodus, a new freedom into a full, free, joyful relationship with God and into a new kingdom and a new family as Jesus teaches us how to live together the life of the new creation. Let's listen to him.